Welcome to the Cal Current Podcast, presented by the Law Offices of Snell and Wilmer. This is a legal podcast that examines a variety of current legal issues that affect individuals and businesses here in California and beyond. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Cal Current. My name is Rose Sorensen, and I am your host. I'm a corporate and securities lawyer in the Los Angeles office of Snell and Wilmer. The topic for today is purchase price adjustments in M&A transactions, and more specifically, purchase price adjustments based on working capital. Generally speaking, purchase price adjustments are used to ensure that both buyer and seller receive fair consideration. A working capital purchase price adjustment in particular is one of the most commonly used adjustments in the context of acquisitions. This is because businesses usually require a minimum amount of working capital to operate. A buyer acquiring a target company or business needs to make sure that business has enough working capital on hand after the closing to continue to operate the business as previously conducted by seller prior to the closing. If working capital at closing is insufficient to fund the continuing operations, the buyer will be required to inject more cash into the business, essentially affecting an increase to the purchase price it thought it was paying to the seller. To avoid having to make such an additional capital infusion, the buyer will require an adjustment to the purchase price if working capital at closing is less than a targeted amount. The definition of working capital sounds very simple. It is current assets minus current liabilities. However, this type of adjustment is fraught with potential problems because of the opportunities to manipulate the calculation or the definition of the inputs for the calculation if not carefully reviewed and documented. Let's start by taking a look at who prepares the financial statements and the calculation of the adjustment. In true legal fashion, the answer to that question is, it depends. In most cases, it depends on who has access to the most current information that will be required to prepare and calculate the adjustment. For example, if the adjustment will be made at closing, in most cases, it makes sense for the seller to prepare the adjustment because they have been running the operations and have direct visibility into the numbers and the business. If the adjustment will be made post-closing, the buyer is usually in a better position to prepare the calculation because by the time it has taken over the target company's business, it also has access to its books and records. In this case, however, both the seller and the buyer usually want control, so oftentimes you see the buyer prepares and presents to the seller for review a statement of the calculation. This usually occurs within 60 to 90 days post-closing, but that timing should take into account the amount of time the buyer would need to prepare the working capital inputs and to validate and verify that information. Next, let's turn to how the adjustment is prepared. What constitutes a current asset or a current liability seems simple enough, but the accounting principles used to prepare the financial statements and calculate the adjustment may vary. Typically, you see reference to generally accepted accounting principles consistent with the target company's historical practices as the general accounting principle to be applied. However, what does that principle really mean? Any target company deviations from GAAP may be particular to the business practices of the target. There may be genuine questions as to whether those business practices can be substantiated. Therefore, there are at least two considerations that should be addressed when it comes to how the adjustment is prepared. First, the parties, and particularly the seller, will want to make sure that both parties are in agreement as to what the starting point for the adjustment will be. Usually, the calculation is based on the seller's most recent financial statements presented to buyer. This could be 
the most recent year-end or most recent fiscal quarter statements. In making this determination, the seller wants to make sure that the last balance sheet is an accurate reflection of the business. Consideration should be given to different factors that may affect that, including the phase of the life cycle in which that business finds itself. For example, a growing business may require a lot more working capital to be reinvested to sustain that growth than a more mature business. A more mature business may instead be subject to certain cyclical patterns or seasonality that may misrepresent the working capital requirements of the business, which may not be captured by looking at just the most recent balance sheet. For this reason, it may be more appropriate to take working capital over an agreed upon period of time that reflects that cyclical pattern or seasonality. While these nuances will be well recognized by the seller, they may not be as apparent to the buyer and therefore may require some focused due diligence to understand the financial nuances affecting the seller. This due diligence usually commences at the onset of the negotiation and is what goes into the determination by the buyer of what the purchase price it will tender to the seller will be. Second, the parties will want to make sure they clearly define and understand what accounting principles will be applied to the calculation of working capital. The application of generally accepted accounting principles consistent with the target company's historical practices as the required principle may still leave room for interpretation. This is a risky proposition because any misinterpretation between the parties regarding the accounting principles may result in the ability of one party or the other swinging the working capital into the positive or negative category. For example, one current asset category that may raise issues as to collectability, if not properly defined, is accounts receivable. Generally, a buyer is naturally inclined to want a shorter time period during which a receivable will be deemed to be collectible. That allows that collectible to be written off and therefore decreases the amount of the purchase price that would be paid for that particular asset. This is in contrast to a seller who wants to secure some value for those receivables, whether collectible or not they will be looking to expand that time period during which a receivable is deemed to be collectible. Similarly, in the case of inventory, the parties need to agree on what constitutes saleable versus obsolete inventory. The seller may be carrying inventory on the books that may qualify as obsolete from the perspective of the buyer. The buyer may not be willing to pay for that obsolete inventory. There are other categories of working capital that may also need to be reviewed depending on the nature of the business and the agreement of the parties. These may include accrued salaries, sales commissions, bonuses, sick time, and vacation time, among others. Coming up with a clear understanding of what those categories are for the applicable business and how they will be treated for purposes of the calculation can help avoid disputes at the time of making the final calculation and the potential for manipulation of some of those categories of working capital. Because the working capital adjustment is subject to interpretation absent a clear delineation of the various rules and definitions that will be applied to the calculation, these types of adjustments often end up in dispute. For this reason, it is important to consider including some form of dispute mechanism to allow for this process. This adjustment involves a highly technical financial calculation incorporating accounting principles, and it takes place between a buyer and a seller with inherently competing interest. One wants to sell high and the other wants to buy low. One wants more working capital and the other wants to minimize working capital. Therefore, most working capital adjustment provisions also include a specifically tailored form of dispute resolution that brings in an independent accountant or sets forth a process by which buyer and seller can select an independent accountant to make determinations regarding the dispute. 
Sometimes the provisions will box in the scope of the independent accountant's review. For example, that review could be limited to only those matters that are in dispute, and it could require that the accountant's final determination or resolution fall within a specified range that may be set by the proposed amounts alleged by the parties with respect to that disputed item. Some provisions will even provide for how the independent accountant's fees will be paid. That can range from an equal sharing of the fees to a pro rata allocation of the fees based on the proximity of a party's calculation to the final determination of the independent accountant, all the way to leaving that determination in the hands of the independent accountant to decide. Complex M&A transactions can take a substantial amount of time to negotiate and close. Buyers will try to use the working capital purchase price adjustment to protect themselves from any working capital shortfall. Oftentimes, buyers will require a portion of the purchase price to be deposited into an escrow to cover the working capital calculation process, or may simply include that as part of the general escrow requirements for the transaction as a whole. Regardless of the structure, it is important to make sure that there is no double counting of the items covered in the working capital adjustment. Consider whether you need a carve-out for the purchase price adjustment from the indemnification provisions generally. Review what types of disclosures are made and determine how those impact the working capital calculation. Examine whether there is an overlap in how other provisions may interact with the working capital calculation. And again, avoid double counting. Most importantly, consider documenting the detailed accounting rules, procedures, and calculations the parties agree to use to arrive at working capital as an exhibit to the purchase agreement. The more clarity and agreement the parties can negotiate on such a complicated aspect of the M&A transaction, the less likelihood for the parties to be able to argue to recast the accounting policies, procedures, and calculations at the time of the final calculation. The last thing a seller wants is for a buyer to use the working capital purchase price adjustment as an opportunity to renegotiate the purchase price on the back end of the transaction. The last thing a buyer wants is to have to pay additional purchase price in the form of working capital that should have been available to the company. As you can see, working capital purchase price adjustments are complicated. These provisions have many variables that are easily subject to interpretation if not well negotiated, defined, and memorialized. This podcast covers just the tip of the iceberg, but as long as parties are aware of the potential pitfalls, they will be better prepared when negotiating these types of adjustments. We've come to the end of this episode of The Cal Current. I'm your host, Rose Sorensen, and I appreciate your time. If you have any questions about the topic covered in today's episode, please email me at rsorensen at swlaw.com. That's R-S-O-R-E-N-S-E-N at swlaw.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cal Current, a weekly podcast navigating California's legal landscape brought to you by the law offices of Snell and Wilmer. Do you have a topic you would like to discuss? Please feel free to send us your topics to calcurrent at swlaw.com. Be sure to check out our website for more episodes and information about this podcast. We can also be found on all major social media platforms at SWLaw News. Thank you, and until next time.